You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. All right. Welcome to The Boost, conversations with people promoting mental health. And that is certainly who we have here today with Melissa Forth Shackelford. She has been with Optum. Uh, she's been with uh, Hazleton Betty Ford. She's been with Evernorth Health Services. And uh, certainly you probably recognize all three of those brands and organizations and uh, the work they're doing in and around the space. So I am just thrilled to have a conversation today with you, Melissa. How are you doing? I'm great, Steve. And I am so looking forward to our conversation. I feel like, I think I've told you, I've watched so many of your podcasts. I feel like we're old friends already. Yeah, I can't believe it either. I feel like I know you from LinkedIn, um, but this is really one of the first times we've been able to talk uh, live in person uh, through video, but you have been an amazing connector and I am... I love to connect too. I don't know. I call that one of my superpowers. I don't yeah. know. You must have that in your in your bag of tools because you've been putting sending people our way that have been so tremendously valuable and interesting and um and it's been in the context of the mental health marketing conference which I run and is coming up in September. But yeah, thank you for just connecting us with your network. I tell you, that's one of my favorite things to do, especially in behavioral health care, because all of us really need to know each other. When you think about it, what we're doing is we're making sure people understand that there's life-saving care available. And so everyone who can possibly refer someone to the right care needs to know each other. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, totally. I hope to repay the favor sometime, connect you with my network too. Um, but you're a healthcare marketing executive, you know, C-level marketing strategist. And um, uh, I want to get into some of your, uh, some of your passion and some of your interest in the space around stigma and, and especially stigma, I think is where we start. But before that, we always do two questions. So I want to give these to you to answer. Uh, it's the virtual hug and the shameless plug. So the virtual hug is tell us somebody or something you're thankful for today. So I'm going to ask if I can do two. Do so, it. And this is, so I do a gratitude every day as just part of my daily practice. And so I uh, but I have to say there's two today. And one is just from a personal standpoint. Last weekend was my birthday. So I have to say I'm very grateful for my family, for my husband. And I have three adult stepdaughters and they just made it a wonderful birthday weekend. So I have to acknowledge that from a personal standpoint. But then from a more professional standpoint, for whatever reason, and, and you mentioned connecting people recently, I've had so many women in my professional network reach out for me to connect with their other colleagues or their people in their networks. And it's just been just coming out of the woodwork in the last couple of weeks. And I just have to say, I'm so grateful that I have this network of particularly female uh, professionals across the board. And people are so, 
I'm always willing to have a conversation and then introduce them to the next person. And people are always so willing to talk to me. So I'm just, I'm really filled with gratitude around my female professional network. Mm. Well, happy belated birthday, first of all. <laughs> and, uh, and family comes up so often in the, the, in that moment of gratitude. And I love that you have two, you have two virtual hugs. Uh, so you have your family and then you have, uh, especially women in your professional network who are, um, approaching you to have conversations and you're so easy to talk to, you know, it's like you, you get what you give sometimes. And so I can see that being the case for you. Um, is there, is there a specific conversation topic that's come up recently? Is there, are there trends that you're noticing in these conversations or are people simply wanting to get to know you and the work you're doing or, or is there something in the zeitgeist that is kind of, I don't know, that you've seen a trend in? Well, I'll, I'll say that there's a lot of women that are in transition right now. There's just a lot of folks in transition. And what I see, especially there's a trend on LinkedIn for people to be very open about being in transition. And so I think reaching out your hand for help is something that's becoming more and more commonplace. And you mentioned stigma. Maybe the stigma of being in transition is, is reducing these days. So people are more willing to say, oh, you need to meet so-and-so or so-and-so. And so something I always try to do is make sure I can make another introduction. If someone's been introduced to me, I try to make sure I figure out who in my network could I introduce them to. And and frankly, people that sometimes I'm barely connected to or I worked with 15, 20 years ago, they're very, very open, particularly these days, to meet another connection. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, there's a there's this growing awareness, I think, around imperfection. And uh, that we don't need to hold ourselves to unreachable standards or have this polish around whether it's the resume that that never has a gap or, you know, there's just we get it. Like, I think we get it. I think we've all kind of collectively been through some hard times lately mm -hmm. and hard times do have a way of um, providing opportunity to be more realistic and be more resilient. Um, both it's, it's all how we react and uh, respond to sort of those challenges in our life. As long as they don't break us, we have an opportunity to strengthen. So yeah, I love, I love that, that we can be real. And I think that, I think the imperfection is actually, um, net net positive you know to be able to talk about it as your personal brand and say hey i'm i'm a human that's actually what i am is the is the thing that resonates most with other humans at their core you know we all have our masks that we project and wear but um at the core i think the truth is that we we nod our head and say ah oh, yeah there's there's a fellow human that i can relate to i love that you mentioned imperfection i think that that's just that encompasses all of it. And I, it's one of the sort of unexpected gifts of the pandemic is that we all suffered some form of anxiety, depression, loneliness. And I think people understood that all of us are suffering in our own way. And I love thinking about it as imperfection. It's that we are all human. We all went through this experience and no one went through it unscathed. So I think that one really helped when we talk about stigma in, in the mental health arena. I think that was one of the unexpected gifts that we didn't know we were going to get out of a pandemic. Yeah, that's that's how I just have come to describe it is that we've uncovered a, a latent demand. Actually, it was always there in the marketplace. Maybe it was shoved down, 
Um, but it's sort of like the surfboard that you try to keep underwater. You know, you can only do it for so long and, and then it, it pops up and uh, there's an equal and opposite reaction. So there's no surprise that uh, an, a state of forced loneliness and isolation, which we know is one of those, you know, silent enemies and oftentimes maybe even as the result of a, a symptom of mental illness, that can be the messaging that you get is I should stay alone. I shouldn't seek care. I'm ashamed or afraid of the change that's going to happen if I do pursue this path. And yeah, how, however we can overcome that. Um, so it's, you know, things move in waves. So coming out of this, this portion of the pandemic and COVID, it's also, it's also encouraging to hear like the reaction and experience that you're having with people who are saying, oh no, I want to connect with Melissa and I want to, I want to tap into her expertise and, and what she's doing. Um, and that's a, that's a good transition. So let's, let's, let's hear from you. Let's do the shameless plug, which is your opportunity as you can only do and do best is tell us, tell us about your background and experience. So people know, as we get into stigma and inclusive marketing down the road in this conversation, kind of the context in your experience. So I will just tell you kind of a little bit about myself. And then I do have a, a shameless plug to make, but I, I've been really, really uh, lucky to work for some very progressive healthcare organizations. And you said at the beginning, you said Optum, you said Hazen and Betty Ford, you said Evan North Health Services. And and looking back, even at Optum, when I was there, Optum had a behavioral health side, and they were really some of the first, uh, one of the first organizations to bring data into behavioral health and start to show the importance of behavioral health, that it doesn't have to be off to the side. Behavioral health is really important, and the data showed that. And then, of course, at Hazel and Betty Ford, so Hazel and Betty Ford bringing together substance use disorder and mental health treatment Hazel and Betty Ford had always been on really the forefront of breaking down stigma there. And I mean, a lot of it goes back to Betty Ford. I mean, Betty Ford could have gone to treatment, gotten to her treatment for her substance use disorder and never told anyone. It could have all been, you know, quiet, but she chose to make it public. And, and that really makes her one of the very first advocates to make it okay for women to get to get treatment and get care. And then at Evernorth Health Services, we've got some folks really on the forefront of bringing behavioral health into mainstream healthcare. And there's a, a woman there, um, Melissa Riley. So another Melissa, uh, but she's doing such great work really out on, um, in the marketplace talking about not behavioral health off to the side, but behavioral health is to the core. Um, I know there was a, a study that, that she's been um, touting that I think I might get it wrong, but it's about 20 something percent of, patients have a mental health condition, but they account for nearly half of the healthcare spend. I mean, it, it's shocking. And so she's really been out there talking about um, behavioral health is healthcare. And I, I feel like I'm really lucky to have been part of all those organizations. I'm also on the, on the board of a couple of healthcare organizations. Um, so I've been able to see really how do we, how do we progressively integrate what is behavioral health care into all of healthcare. I, I really been lucky about that. What I was thinking about for my shameless plug is I was going to go back to my virtual hug and, and say, I want to shamelessly plug women's healthcare networking organizations. And again, I know I'm just, I feel like I'm excluding half the population, but I, I'm so grateful to be a part of a couple of women's healthcare networking organizations. And one I'm on the board of 
it's local to Minnesota. It's called the Women's Health Leadership Trust. And it's an organization with women of all, all um, sizes and shapes and um, in healthcare get together and really connect and learn from each other. And it's an amazing thing. I'm also part of another organization that's a national organization called WBL. It's Women Business Leaders in Healthcare. And again, one of the things that they're trying to do is have no cold calls in healthcare. Well, that's amazing um, if we can get to, to that point. And so I really want to plug, there's a lot of these organizations out there and just encourage, particularly women, to get involved in some of these uh, networking organizations to learn and grow and connect. Um, so, so that would be my shameless plug because it's been so beneficial for me to really take that step and be able to connect with other women personally and professionally and connect them to others as well. Mm. Well, I'm going to have to learn more about WBL uh, specifically because uh, in conjunction with another organization, it's a little early. We, we've been exploring this idea of a, it's kind of like a summit retreat for female executive level healthcare leaders. Um, and I've come from the mental health, behavioral health space in the last five years. And, you know, there's like 75, 80% of therapists are women. Um, and that's not reflected in the C-suite. And there are plenty of conferences that are very yang, like very private equity, very suited up and executive focused. And there is totally a place for that. I, I, I'm not talking down about that experience in the very least bit. I think that's wonderful. Um, but there's also, there's also, I, could, I think, a need for a counterbalance and a place for the female healthcare executive to do exactly what you're doing. So I don't want to recreate the wheel, um, but I would love to be um, instrumental in that, in that goal. I love the idea of no cold calls in healthcare. Um, and also the idea of continuing to develop inclusive welcoming spaces for uh, people to collaborate and to kind of get over the competitive mindset uh, it's one of the biggest changes in my life was to move from what I call the competitive path to the creative path and creative meaning create things of value for people who need it. Um, and almost everybody is in need. So, um, you know, it's not simply people struggling with social determinants of health, for example, you know, it's, it's people in the, in the top floor executive office as well. Um, but I love to hear more. I'm glad you did that shameless plug for WBL. I'm going to, I noted it. I'm going to look it up after this. Yeah, absolutely. Please do. Please do. And their mission is to get more women in the C-suite and on boards in healthcare. And we know that that's a problem and they're working on it. And so I think that there's, there's, organi there's lots of other women's organizations out there, but those are just two that have, I found very beneficial. And I, I agree with you. I think there's so much more we can do and particularly in behavioral healthcare, just because there is such stigma and it is so hard for people to take that first step that I feel like we need to have much more collaborative environment uh, than in any other industry. Healthcare in general, we should be supportive of each other and not competitive. But I, I love how you said it moved from competitive to creative. I, I think that's a lot. That's something that we can all take away. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's there's tons of opportunity, too much opportunity. Um, 
so you you mentioned you know substance use disorder and you know we're sort of we were talking pre-call about the term mental health and how you know there's no perfect word there's no perfect term for uh everything we're dealing with with behavioral health and sud and mental health and talk therapy and coaching and all of it there's a big umbrella um but there's also a big umbrella under this word um, or over this word stigma. And that's, I know that's something you're passionate about. So um, I just open it up to you. Like when you think about stigma in this space, where, where does your mind go? And uh, where do you tend to focus on when it comes to that word stigma? So you used the word early on in our conversation about when you're thinking about people who are experiencing loneliness and um, maybe uh, anxiety, depression during the pandemic and, and said they were feeling so much shame that they didn't want to reach out for help. And and that's where I kind of shame is the big word I associate with stigma, that people feel so much shame about something that they want to keep it hidden. They don't want to talk about it. They want to keep it in the dark. And in healthcare, we have so many uh, conditions that there is care available, but stigma prevents people from getting that care. And the fact that we could save lives if we broke down that stigma and broke down that shamefulness about different conditions. Um, I, I feel like more than any other place, we need to, in healthcare, break down that stigma. Mm. It's it's almost like a debt. Like, yeah. I mean, Carl Jung said, you know, what you resist persists, you know? And when I sat with my, he's a licensed professional counselor is what I went to, um, who helped me really tap into uh, the emotional reality into recognizing, accepting, and being with uh, an accurately defined emotion. And shame came up so often. You know, he would point over to this poster on the side of his wall. He'd be like, well, what do you think you're feeling right now? And once again, it's like, oh, yeah, it's shame. And it feels like it feels like the way that um, I was... I was sort of in debt emotionally. There's an interest to be paid on that, and it can it can compound over time. I think so. As we as we have a tendency to resist and push it down, I don't think it simply stays in status quo. I think there's um, sort of a compounding effect. I guess is the best way to say it on our emotions. And so, releasing on that and allowing that to safely in a trusting environment, come to the surface and deal with it and deal with ourselves who we are today instead of the maybe the picture that we think we need to be or our parents think thought we needed to be or whatever the, the definition of what we're projecting out there just to simply deal with the reality and be present with ourselves in our current state. That was a tremendously healthy shift for me. Yeah. And I think like you're, you mentioned about kind of what other people think we should be, what we think we should be. There's this pressure from society to be, have this sh shiny, happy facade that I'm shiny, happy. I have a shiny, happy family. Everything is perfect. And that makes it even harder when you have to admit that there's a crack somewhere in it. And if it's, if it's that, you know, you, you need glasses. Oh, okay. That's no big deal. I'm going to go get glasses. That's not a crack in my shiny, happy facade. But if I need care for substance use disorder, care for an eating disorder, care for a mental health condition, well, that for whatever reason, even though there's care available for all those conditions, 
I may not want to reach out for help because that breaks the facade of everything is perfect. Everything is fine. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, mean, I look back a couple of generations and, and, uh, I bring up the example of breast cancer, you know, it's like hyper stigmatized for a while. Um, and we've thankfully moved well off of that. Um, uh, but, and my grandma did have breast cancer and my other grandma, um, never had cancer as far as I know in her life. She was a nurse and she smoked packs of cigarettes a day. And uh, again, this was pre-call, but I'd love to bring it up because it was fascinating to me. You were talking about inclusive marketing and uh, sort of how we can judge smokers um, based on behaviors or addictions that we really don't fully understand how an addictive chemical or substance might react in somebody's life, given their upbringing and their nature and their nurture and their culture and everything. Uh, but we do love to find um, sort of a simple matrix that we can put people into. So I really appreciated your point. What we talk a little bit more about inclusive marketing and uh, and how we judge smokers, because that's fascinating to me. So I was for many years on the board of the American Lung Association and and one day we had one of their marketers come in and, and talk about a marketing campaign they were doing. And it was targeted at smokers and former smokers because there was a, a scan available to detect very early detection of lung cancer in these folks that were smokers or former smokers. And most often the former smokers were too shameful to tell their primary care physician that they were a former smoker. So they mm. weren't getting these scans. And oftentimes if they, you know, get the question, do you smoke? They'd say no. And they wouldn't bring up, well, I did until, you know, two years ago and I quit because there's such shame. So what the American Lung Association did, which I just think is bold and, and really just a fearless way to lean into it. They leaned into a very expensive, very expansive campaign targeting smokers and former smokers, letting them know that there is this life-saving scan available to, for early detection for lung cancer. So often, even at the American Lung Association, people will separate lung cancer into smoking-related and non-smoking-related. And that just further stigmatizes the smokers and former smokers. But what the American Lung Cancer did, which I feel like they just said stigma, we're throwing it out the window. They were speaking directly to those folks. You're a smoker, you're a former smoker. Let's celebrate that you're a former smoker, but you still need to get a scan because you still could very you know, easily get lung cancer, hmm. but there's this, there's early detection available. It was called Save by the Scan. You can Google it if you're a former smoker. Um, that isn't talking to your primary care physician about what your options are. The Save by the Scan website is great, but it's really, I mean, they could do the lung, American Lung Association could do all sorts of different campaigns, but they leaned into that one, even though people judge the heck out of smokers, especially if there's a smoker with lung cancer that is so stigmatized. Um, but it's an, you know, nicotine, we all know, is very highly addictive. And so these are folks that are using a highly addictive substance and they're very, you know, they're candidates for getting a, a scan like this to have that early detection. Hmm. I just love it. I think it's bold. And I think more people should do that. I mean, the the other example I'll just give you a quick is, is around HIV AIDS, that HIV AIDS, which used to be and still is very uh, stigmatized. But now you see advertisements all over TV. So I feel like the these these drug manufacturers with life saving care available, they're saying 
say, heck with stigma. We're going to go right on TV and advertise in the middle of NFL football games. I, I just love that. I love that they're saying we're going to jump right in. And by doing that, they normalize all of this. They normalize all of these different conditions. Mm-hmm. That makes me think of uh, one of my favorite authors, Nassim Nicholas Taleb is his name. And he's written some books, uh, Anti-Fragile and a book called The Black Swan. Not the ballet story, but a story about how there are unknown unknowns in our life. And he has this turn of phrase, and I want to use it carefully because um, because it's a turn of phrase. It's not totally um, totally inclusive. But he says, it's not the crime, it's the cover-up. And uh, I'm not suggesting that smoking is a crime. Uh, what I'm suggesting is that um, this phrase is applicable because of the smoker who goes to the doctor and feels like there's been this behavior that is shameful, or there is this thing that I shouldn't have done, but I did it. And that's what I would, that's what I would term as the quote unquote crime in our own minds. But the, the challenge is the cover up. So then because we're in the office talking to the doctor who's there for our health and we haven't been healthy, what we say is I'm, I'm ashamed of talking about my past behavior and my decisions. And that's where the problem is. That's where the scan could be so life-saving for people, but because we can't talk about it or don't feel comfortable talking about it, that's, that's the real problem is that we can't um, move into early detection because we're just simply not embracing the current reality. Absolutely. That just goes right to the core of stigma in healthcare. It's that shame that prevents people from reaching out and getting the life-saving care that they need, whether it's smoking. I mean, hundred percent, that's the case in, in much of behavioral health as well as other, other conditions. I mean, we're having some breakthroughs right now with obesity because of a lot of the Ozempic and the all of the, the drugs in that category that can help people who um, people with obesity, but that's all, you know, something clearly that's very, very stigmatizing. Um, but we're, we're, we're having a conversation about obesity in the United States now, just because of Ozempic and Wagovi and all the, those drugs that can, that can bring life-saving care. Hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, I haven't tracked that too much. I've been, it's been on my radar. Um, I don't know too much about that conversation or, or the medication. Um, but I'm glad to hear that, you know, for people who, who have identified obesity as something they want to, you know, um, counteract or whatever, that there are medical innovations happening. Um, what you mentioned, you mentioned Optum and sort of the data-driven approach um, in your work. What what do you see? Where do you see us still needing to kind of fit data into um, the decision making and the marketing that we're doing to bring people in who might feel excluded? Are there are are there some um, projects you've been a part of or? Um, some trends that you're seeing to to bring some data in or maybe some gaps in the data that we need to fill? Yeah, so Evernorth Health Services has actually done quite a bit of research in this space. There, um, I mentioned before some of the studies to really show about the costs hmm. of untreated mental health conditions and obviously substance use disorder, the cost to all of healthcare and the impact across all of healthcare. And so I think that's one of the ways we get the health systems, the healthcare providers, the payers in particular, to pay more attention to these conditions, because oftentimes people aren't, they're not covered. 
as well as they possibly could be, or they may not know about their coverage. And so the costs, there's been a lot of research, I think, into the costs and the impact. The one I mentioned briefly before, uh, which I just think is really telling, is that it's about 22% of patients have uh, some type of mental health condition, but those particular patients make up almost half of all healthcare spend. So that just tells you that, they're in, that, that their mental health conditions are impacting so many other things. And there's the problem, the biggest problem we have in behavioral health is that we're calling it behavioral health and we're setting it off to the side and not realizing that this impacts all of healthcare and all healthcare conditions. And, and so for that's one of the things that I think is going to actually help us in sort of mainstreaming behavioral health is the fact that there's so it impacts costs across the board of all of healthcare. So, yeah. so that one makes me really happy. And a lot of the research being done there is, is looking at the costs. That's, that's so complicated because we've seen that in healthcare and to, to circle back to the concept of obesity and smoking, you know, when we sort of did these community health assessments, um, you know, a few years ago and it's been ongoing, you know, it's basically the same four or five challenges in the communities that have the most, uh, the most health challenges, you know, it's, it's a short list, it's obesity, it's smoking, it's diabetes. Um, and, uh, and, and we still haven't solved for that, even in a bio perspective, you know, and so much of that I think has to do with behavioral health and how can we be, become more educated and more aware about how we as individuals are operating and what are the stressors in our lives and where are we alone where we could use support and it's like we tried to wag the dog by saying well we just need to reduce uh cardiovascular issues you know it's like well it's not really the heart that's the problem most of the time right i mean it's like it's so much more complicated than that but um that's one reason i was so excited to talk to you about um about about this topic of of stigma and how can we reach more people in need is because you do come from optum and for everything that people may or may not say about payers and 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 insurance companies they run the math they know the math and there's almost nobody better positioned to take a value based approach or at least to mitigate risk than an insurance company across any industry um and then there's the and then there's the health system which is perfectly entrenched and moded in the community as probably uh, place one where people go to to the to the point that our ERs are you know are struggling to deal sometimes with mental health um, mm -hmm. issues because that's where people show up um, but you're right we've bucketed behavioral health way out it's like the last bastion yeah. out there the last silo that we've really I think failed to bring into the health system and my question about all of this that I think about, and I'm not assuming you have the answer, but I'm guessing you might, is why has it been, why have we been so slow to figure out how to pay for mental health when you can run the math on like what you were saying, the 20% drives 50% of costs, like serious mental illness cases, you know, are a, a small, small percentage that drive a tremendous amount of cost. And we just don't have a national framework to work and and solve uh, solve for even providing solutions for that um why has it been such a slow process for paying for mental health and behavioral health 
So I, I'm going to answer that in, in two parts. The, the first is that just straight stigma. I think it's just straight stigma, stigma wow. is that people still are uncomfortable about talking about mental health conditions. They're uncomfortable talking about substance use disorder. They, I think society still sees substance use disorder in particular as a moral failing and not a disease. So there you have that hurdle to, to climb over. It's getting much better with mental health conditions, especially because of the pandemic. We were talking about mental health so often. And frankly, we're having a very very public figures like uh, Michael Phelps, like Simone Biles talking about their mental health. And that just opens up the door for the conversation. So I think stigma is really causing a lot of that to not move forward. Then you have, I think, the, the, the conversation around, I think, the opioid epidemic sort of brought addiction into middle yeah. America. And so that actually, for good or for bad, opened up some more conversations. So hope, you know, that's that's making some progress. But really, stigma is why I think it's still off to the side, why we still call it behavioral health and it's just not health care. Mm -hmm. But the other side, I think there is a lot of work being done. I think Optum and all the other payers, uh, Evernorth Health Services doing the same thing, where they're really digging in and looking at the data, looking at the costs. And they're seeing all the comorbidities across the board and saying, mm -hmm. wow, if I can get the person care for these mental health conditions, it's going to help over here. Because you just laid out the big drivers of, of cost with cardiovascular, obesity, diabetes, uh, hypertension. All these yep. things are, are big, the big drivers. And a lot of those are chronic diseases that can be prevented. Um, and so there's a lot of focus on those. But I, I feel like there is so much more in recent years focused by the payers in particular. Because, you know, the payers are data driven. They have all the data. They can see it. They can see the correlations between a mental health condition as well as all these other conditions. And they know when you treat X, then Y was going to happen. So I, yeah. I feel hope. Actually, I feel more hope in recent years. And I think the pandemic gave us the sort of a gift of a conversation, a public conversation around mental health. And the opioid epidemic also has given us the gift of a conversation around addiction to some extent. Because it seems that, this is just my opinion, it seems that people think, well, the opioid epidemic is kind of accidental. Um, people, you know, they had a surgery and they got accidentally hooked on the pain meds versus the moral failing of just substance use disorder. And so it's still there's a lot of stigma there we need to break down. But at least we're having conversations that we didn't have in the past. Hmm. Yeah, I had a I had a college roommate who just totally. Yeah. I mean, salt of the earth kind of guy, you know, got hooked on opioids, uh, after a surgery and yeah, you do see that. Um, and he died a few years ago, um, super early and it's sobering because that, that literally in my understanding, literally changes the wiring in your brain, you know, once it gets in there and, and it's, it's similar to our bodies. Um, but our words matter because we don't say I am diabetes. You know, we say I have diabetes, but we say I am an addict. You know, it's not that I have addiction challenges or, you know, it, it, there's no more nuance than that where we define ourselves based on, I think you're right. It's probably shame and stigma that's driving a lot of the way that we, we like to identify ourselves or other people 
in instances where we feel like they should have done something differently, you know, where there's this finger wagging rather than, oh, well, this, this happened to you. Um, you spun a big giant wheel of luck and you landed on the unlucky spot and we're sorry about that. And, um, and, and we can come in and, and care for you and, and pay for your medical bills because of that. So, um, yep. not imagining yep. we can solve it today, but that's, I okay. appreciate your perspective on it. I think that language is one of the ways that all of us can help break down stigma. And it's exactly what you said. It's separating the person from their condition. So not saying he is an addict. He is a person with substance use disorder. And in fact, substance use disorder versus substance abuse, you can see the judgment in the two. One is a disorder. One is a health condition. One is judgment. So it's the same thing with schizophrenia. He is not a schizophrenic, he is someone with schizophrenia. And it's, mm -hmm. it's just, it's very using person-centered language, separating the person from their condition and, um, and stopping using terms like he's suffering from addiction. Mm -hmm. He's um, afflicted with this disease. Those are really negative and really judgmental. If we can start to separate the person that they have a health condition, they're not a bad person. Like you said, it's spin the wheel of luck or what have you. They're a person with a health condition and there's life-saving care available for wow. them. And it's something all of us can do. And all of us, especially for the folks following you for your mental health marketing conference, it's all of us in the, the field of marketing and communications around healthcare. We could just be cautious on how we talk about things because if I, if I uh, have cancer, I'm not going to be ashamed to go and tell people, that I am getting care for my cancer or I'm not afraid to talk to my doctor about it. But if I have some type of behavioral health condition uh, or a loved one has one, I'm going to be ashamed or I could be ashamed and not talk about it. So I'm going to suffer in silence. I'm not going to talk about uh, the condition and my concerns or not reach out to get the life-saving care I need. It's, mm -hmm. it's something rather, it's, I think it's pretty simple. It's just the nuance in the language. I'm optimistic too. I feel like we are, you know, slowly spiraling upward and um, into greater and greater awareness. Conversations like this, more, much more commonplace, you know, compared to maybe 10 years ago, where we certainly don't say, I am cancer, you know, I am, I am schizophrenic, you know, I, I have these things, I'm dealing with these things. You know, the committed suicide language is another one that we can point to. I attempted to commit suicide, quote unquote, um, has so many things that are just misleading, you know, as as part of the language that we use. So. So thanks for the work you're doing, um, especially around including people as humans who, you know, certainly have complexities, comorbidities, uh, social determinants of health that are too complex to say there is one model for this based on who you are, I can fit you into this definition. Um, so just to throw that out altogether, you know, like the American Lung Association did and like you're doing with your work around um, destigmatizing our language and inclusive marketing. I think that's wonderful work. Um, and thanks for coming on the show. It's, um, I'd love to do this again with you. Um, at some point, I'd love to, to book you to come to the conference um, yeah. and, uh, and talk more about this with our attendees. I know they'll value it, um, but certainly here online, I appreciate your perspective. 
Oh, I appreciate that you're willing to have this conversation and to talk about stigma and stigmatized conditions. It's it's not kind of everyday run-of-the-mill healthcare conversations. And so I appreciate it. And it makes us all think about ourselves and think about our loved ones because we all know someone that is uh, that has some type of behavioral health condition. We all know someone who, and we all, uh, I think, experience, had our own experience, like you said, with loneliness and isolation uh, during the guts of the pandemic. And so I think it gave us all a, a new appreciation for for what others are experiencing. It did. Yeah. I, I wasn't fully aware of what was happening at the time, but when I, when I went to talk therapy and counseling, what I really realized my passion truly is, is helping myself first and helping people where possible um, to claim agency. And by that, I mean, as much responsibility and ownership for your life as humanly possible, given your situation. And, and that is on a giant quadrant where you're, you're responsible for the singular individual. And I can speak from my experience. There was so much in my life to clear out in order to say to myself, this life is largely either my doing or my creation. And, um, and how, 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 like where, what possibly can I remove from my life? It's very reductive. What can I possibly remove from my life that gets in the way of me fully living my life? And then there is uh, sort of the horizontal axis of that quadrant, which is like, okay, now that I've learned something about myself, are there other people who maybe are on a similar path and not everybody is, you know, I think there's lots of paths up the mountain. So I'm not saying I'm here to save the world. I'm simply saying my experience might be something that's repeated in some other people's lives at some point and vice versa. I can learn from people like you and others. So that's where I come up with this thesis, but, um, but to get hung up on the fact that these things are my fault or my, um, my burden that they simply can't be solved for maybe, but maybe not, you know, but it, it's, you were lucky enough, I think, to be able to reach out and get the help you needed and to have these conversations. And there's so many people who can't even quite take that first step. So you even talking about it in a public forum, like you do, it, it helps other people to say, well, maybe I need to reach out for help too and take that first step and and have those conversations as well and that's that's a, that's just a beautiful thing i just appreciate it applaud you and I, I really respect all the work that you're doing oh thank you melissa that means a lot and same to you yeah same to you i'm so excited we got to talk today and let's stay in touch and um thanks for coming on the boost of course and um wish you the best with everything that's coming up in your future yeah you too thanks steve thanks melissa this podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.